afternoon, good morning, or happy April if you're still stuck there. Um, welcome to the weekly episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Um, we are doing a little bit of a run-up here to get ready for the show. But as always, I'm your host, Tom Hollingsworth. Um, joining me today is the inimitable Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, thanks for hopping on today. Um, it's it's an interesting news day. <laughs> um, we've got a lot of great stories to cover. I got to say, though, Tom, um, there have been occasions when I have been imitated. <laughs> yes, I, I, I've seen the imitating, and uh, unfortunately, they just can't capture the soul of who you are. Mostly, well, because I'm not actually sure if we have souls anymore uh, working at IT as long as we have. But, you know, we'll get there. Um, for those of you who are joining us here on uh, YouTube, thank you very much uh, for being uh, subscribers. If you're not a subscriber, you definitely need to because you don't want to miss an episode of The Rundown when it comes out every week. Uh, you also don't want to miss any of the other videos that we are working on, um, things like uh, Gestalt IT Checksum, Tomversations. Um, we might even get back to doing some unboxing videos um, once we get back into the office, that is. Uh, but, you know, we always appreciate you being a part of who we are. Uh, but we're going to go ahead and get the rundown started for everyone else out there. So uh, we got some great news stories coming up. A um, little bit of security news, a little bit of chip news, and maybe something about the Internet crashing on a Sunday. So we will get going now. Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, where each week we meet to discuss the news and we might inject a little bit of snarkiness in a cross-site scripting attack. My name is Tom Hollingsworth. I am your host, and I am joined, as always, by my wonderful co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the program. It is really super sparkly to be here, Tom. Ah, uh, yes, yes. It is It is indeed a super, super sparkly day. Um, however, it's not sparkly for some of the companies that we have coming up in the rundown. Uh, we've got a great list of news stories, and we're going to go ahead and get started with one of our favorite segments, News or Nah. This is where we take a look at some of the news that came out in the last week. Um, some of it we want to talk about, but maybe not quite as much as we, you know, as some people think about. Um, so I'm going to give some, Stephen some news stories, and he's going to tell me whether or not he thinks this is news or not. Um, starting with our first news story. Uh, GoGo InFlight, which is one of the most popular airline Wi-Fi services, announced that it's being sold to Intelsat for about $400 million in cash. Uh, the timing is rather odd because Intelsat filed for bankruptcy in May. Um, there are rumors that this bankruptcy was very strategic because it's designed to help Intelsat pay down about $15 billion in debt while still, allow, still allowing it to participate in some of the FCC's upcoming spectrum allocations and auctions. Um, GoGo InFlight is going to remain an independent company headquartered in Chicago. Um, there was, you know, the usual glad handing announcements about how this is a, a new direction for the company and provides us with all kinds of great assets. Um, but Stephen, I think the bigger question here is air travel has been pretty much down for the last six months. Is this kind of a desperation move from GoGo to, to find some cash to stay afloat a few more months until we can get back to some semblance of normal? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say whether, uh, you know, to what extent this is related to the uh, airline industry. Oh, forget it. I can't even say that with a straight face. Of course, this is related to the airport air, airline apocalypse. I'm sorry, nobody's using GoGo right now because nobody's flying. Um, and, and actually, that's not 100% correct. I love Marketplace. Uh, they do their, um, one of their indicators is um, uh, airport traffic. And, and if I recall correctly, airport traffic is back up to like 30 or 40% or something. 
Um, but there are approximately, um, let me see, uh, divide the zero, carry the, uh, zero business travelers right now. And uh, who uses GoGo in-flight? Business travelers. Um, so yeah, it, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to just say, bing, pandemic. Yeah. Um, at least they found a way to get sold to somebody as opposed to just quietly going out of business. And, and then we have to rely on Boingo. So I wonder how long it would have taken um, business travelers to notice that GoGo was gone since they're not. Um, I'm going to go with another year. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> um, Cisco iOS XR boxes are now open to a new exploit thanks to a new bug that was announced recently. Cisco said that there is a bug in the distance vector multicast routing protocol, one of my favorites. Um, it can lead to an attack that exhausts memory and causes a crashing of device processes, which is impressive considering that iOS XR was designed to have process isolation. Uh, back to the drawing board, guys. Uh, the announcement discussed that the bug has been found, does have exploits, and they have been detecting attacks that have been uh, launched on service providers since those are the companies that are the most likely ones to be using iOS XR. Um, patches are still incoming from Cisco. They are typing their fingers off to get those out as soon as possible. Meanwhile, Cisco is helping customers who have filed support cases even try to figure out if they're being exploited by this. Steven, big carrier grade router exploit in the wild, news or not? Um, I'm gonna defer to you, dude. Is that news? Um, I mean, it sounds bad. Uh, you're the you're the expert, dude. Well, I think the problem here is that we have a very short time frame from exploit disclosure to actual attacks to why do we still not have a patch for this? Um, I think that there's something going on that Cisco's because what typically what you see is they'll announce that there's something out there. Oh, by the way, here's the patch. We've been working on it for two weeks because we got this from a researcher. I think this was something that was discovered not by a researcher, but instead by someone who's actively trying to crash some routers. Um, I hope they get this fixed because, uh, as we'll find out later in the news, internet crashes are bad for people. So um, hats off to the Cisco code warriors who are currently um, on their seventh keyboard and third case of Mountain Dew trying to make this a thing. Um, back to Cisco, or actually ex-Cisco in this case, a former Cisco employee pled guilty last week to a charge of unlawfully accessing AWS infrastructure to do a little bit of damage. The employee who worked for Cisco from 2016 to 2018, uh, after he was let go, waited five months and was somehow still able to log into AWS using his former credentials. And then he decided to get even. He deleted around 450 VMs that ran Cisco's WebEx infrastructure. He caused a two-week outage for around 16,000 WebEx users. So if you couldn't log into WebEx a while back, this may have been the reason why. Um, the plea deal was completely sealed. Uh, we don't know if he's going to have to pay a fine or do any jail time. Uh, the story that is linked in the show notes was updated a couple of days later to note that the employee no longer works for Stitch Fix, which was the company that he went to after the fact. Um, Stephen, old employees with an axe to grind logging in to kill some VMs with their expired, not expired credentials, news or not? Nah? Uh... I think this is a harbinger of what we're going to see more and more. Oh my gosh, it is so easy to do this. Um, wow, and uh, and pretty scary too. I mean, honestly, you know, we're WebEx users. Um, I, you know, we're you know, we. I wonder if our account is still there. Theoretically, it is. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think this is news, and I definitely think this is what's going to come next. And uh, those responsible for the sacking have just been sacked. 
Yeah, I'm sure. And those responsible for making sure the people who got sacked had all of their credentials removed and invalidated are probably about to get sacked after we invalidate their credentials. Yeah. Oh, um, I think I think the biggest thing here is if you're not already using some form of an identity management thing, you really need to look into that because this is an easy mistake to make with all the accounts that we have to have now. Because think about this. This wasn't Cisco's infrastructure. This wasn't tied into their existing um, you know, on-campus things. This was an AWS account that they maintained. So you really need to take a look at that. All right, that'll just about do it for news or not today. Uh, we have some big stories that we wanna talk about in the main news section. The first of which of course comes with a Russian twist. So there was a recent report from the FBI that details a plan by a Russian hacking organization to infect a major US company with malware. Uh, it was a fascinating story about hearing how a Russian tourist uh, tried to bribe an employee of a Nevada company to install malware in their system. Uh, the employee went to the FBI, the FBI got involved, they tried to get the employee to talk up the price to a reported $1 million, half paid up front, half paid on delivery. Uh, the Russians started getting cold feet and then the FBI got involved, called the Russian and said, hey, guess what? We found out what you're doing. The Russian immediately called a friend, got a plane ticket out of LAX and got picked up at LAX before he could take off. If that was all there was to the story, it would be interesting. However, this week, Elon Musk announced that the employee worked at the Tesla Gigafactory in Nevada, which means Tesla was the target of this Russian hacking attempt. Russians are trying to get the inside scoop on some of our very own mad scientists' inner works, Stephen. What does this mean for the future of industrial espionage? Uh, yeah, this was a crazy story because, I mean, like if you kind of read into it, I mean, it's obviously it's not entirely clear. We don't exactly know what was going on. But if you kind of read into this, um, it seems like maybe they weren't just trying to do a ransomware attack. It seems like they were trying to do exfiltration of trade secrets and also maybe even inject uh, malicious code into the cars. Because remember, Tesla's vehicles can get over the air updates. Um I am thrilled, I have to say, and, and and so much respect for this employee for not saying a million bucks, yeah, but turning it in to the FBI and to the company security. I really hope that um, our man Elon shot him over, a, I don't know, maybe a guest ticket on a SpaceX flight or maybe a you know, couple uh, thousand shares of stock or something because, wow, what an employee to turn this down. But even so, um, the fact that I'm saying that makes me pretty scared because I'm not sure that every employee would turn this down. Um, we got a question here um, in the chat asking about keeping Tesla stock. <laughs> I'm not a financial advisor and I'm not going to advise you of that. Um, I'll just say that uh, when Elon started acting loopy, I sold all my Tesla stock and I am not looking back. I am not sad that I'm missing out on their gains because um, anyway, uh, but, be that as it may, um, I don't think this is a Tesla problem. I think this is, again, like we previously discussed, I think this is uh, the sign of things to come where you pay an insider. Um, you know, one unoverlooked aspect of this story, too, that was really interesting was the fact that the Russians were trying to do this in person. Like they came to America, they rented a car, they like drove someplace and like met at a bar or whatever. I mean, it, th this is not like, you know, the troll factory, you know, <laughs> let's see if we can do something with Facebook. This is like people on planes with suitcases of cash. And that is an interesting story. Somebody's got to make a movie out of this. Well, and that's the funny thing. This is how they 
they used to do it back in the Cold War when the KGB and the GRU recruited assets. You, you didn't do this via telegram. You, you went and cultivated the asset. And I think that that's one of the things. This guy spent a lot of time looking for what he thought was the right person with the right amount of access. And he jumped out there and did it. And you're right. Maybe this person had a little bit of morality, a little bit of a spine to them and said, you know what? I'm I'm not going to wreck Uncle Elon's massive battery factory for you know what is relatively a cheap payout, uh, depending on the amount of money that they were able to get back. Or I mean, yeah, just think what would have happened if they would have been able to inject code into every Tesla on the road and, and do all kinds of data collection. Um, yeah, if, if this guy doesn't get a new Tesla out of this, um, I, I would be a little bit worried. Um, I also thought it was very interesting that when the initial stories came out last Thursday and Friday, they were very careful not to mention who the company was. And there was a lot of speculation because like we started listing off all the people who worked in Nevada. And then when Elon popped up on Monday and said, yep, it was us, we all kind of went, holy crap. Explicit language. Sorry, YouTube. Yeah. But yeah, that's, you know, this, I, I do not expect this is the last attempt that Russia will attempt to do for a hacking. In fact, I'm probably not even sure this is the first time that they've tried this because someone out there is sitting on a nice cool pile of about $500,000 keeping their mouth shut. Um, so I expect to see more of these stories in the future, hopefully with a happy ending like this one. Um, speaking of a happy ending, let's talk a little bit about Nutanix. Um, they had a recent earnings announcement. It was their yearly earning announcement. And they had two big things that came out. The first is that Nutanix is getting a $750 million investment from Bain Capital in the form of convertible notes designed to support the company's growth, which let's be fair, it's Nutanix. They've been growing like wildfire for the last 10 years. That came along with news that CEO Deeraj Pandey is stepping down just as soon as a replacement can be found and appointed by the board. Now, if you are anyone who knows anybody in the uh, storage, virtualization, or HCI space, you know who Deeraj is. He's very visible in the juggernaut rise of Nutanix. I mean, they basically created hyper-converged infrastructure. Um, he has clashed with a lot of larger companies and some of his detractors. Um, he's He's been a pretty vocal person out there on the internet. Uh, search committee was formed by the Nutanix board. It is leading a quote unquote global effort to find his successor. Now, Stephen, here's the interesting thing. And when you look at the financial results from Nutanix's yearly announcement, um, surprise, surprise, they didn't make any money last year. They've been growing like crazy. What they haven't been doing is making any profits. And people keep injecting money into the company. Bain is just the latest investor. And the way that this is structured, these convertible notes, they're not just throwing money into this. They want to get a return out of it. Do you think that this was some maneuvering behind the scenes to have Deeraj step away in order for them to gain somebody who possibly could pilot this ship to uh, profitable waters? Yeah, I would say um, that this is absolutely a, a vote against um, Diraj, who did full disclosure, um, longtime uh, acquaintance of mine. Uh, I was invited to his uh, 40th birthday party uh, along with like 5,000 other people, but uh, no, 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 really, it was during VMworld. Um, but I, I've been talking to the guys since before they started this company. So that's the disclosure out of the way. They're not a current client. They don't currently sponsor Tech Field Day, so I can maybe speak freely. Um, I feel like this was a vote of no confidence in Diraj. I feel like this was a, a way for um, 
the investors to basically put their foot down and say, okay, it's time for us to get our money back. The most revealing graph of this was the one that showed, um, you know, steady increases in revenues. As you said, um, you know, Nutanix has been growing like a weed. They are a successful company with a successful product. They sell it all over the place, right and left, you know. But at the same time, if you plot their losses, those are going, well, up slash down, however you want to turn your head as well and faster. So I think that what happened was the investors said, uh, okay, we got to get a handle on this thing. Um, I do expect to see some massive cuts. I see expect to see some massive refocusing on, um, you know, profitability. I think the good news here is that, frankly, Nutanix has such a large uh, revenue base that I think they will be able to to right this ship and, and quickly. So again, I'm not giving any stock advice here because God, I, what do I know? But um, I suspect that they're going to get this thing on track. And I'm even going to further suspect that I don't think this is an acquisition in the ha in the making. I think that they're going to get this thing on track and they're going to run it at least for the next few years as a profitable company. Yeah, that was the speculation whenever the big announcement came out from uh, I think it was Seeking Alpha was the first company to, to mention it late last week was, you know, does this make Nutanix ripe for acquisition? And my first thought was, who on earth is big enough to buy them now? I mean, when you look at that graph of, of their revenue, they are they are m dominating HCI. Uh, the, their next closest competitors are large companies that would not buy Nutanix just for what they offer. Um, so I think you're right. I, I, I've always maintained that founders of companies do a great job of getting them off the ground and, and getting them moving in the right direction but they're not the best people to manage companies. I mean, if you look at the management style between someone like Steve Jobs and Tim Cook, couldn't be more different. Um, sometimes Apple needs a Steve Jobs to, to push things forward. Sometimes they need a Tim Cook just to make sure that the, the seas are calm and the ship is moving where it needs to go. Yeah, I, I love that comparison. I mean, I don't want to compare anybody to Steve Jobs or Tim Cook or anything, but um, yeah, I'd say this is Nutanix's Tim Cook moment. I think that's the best takeaway. Yeah. Well, good luck to D-Raj. Um, Lord knows you, you worked your tail off. You enjoy a little bit of retirement, um, you know, and uh, hopefully the board will will keep your baby in good hands. All right. Uh, moving on to our next item. Um, this past Sunday was a bad day for anybody that works for CenturyLink that had to carry a pager. Um, there was a misconfiguration in BGP in a Canadian arm of the company, and it caused traffic to start being black holed across their autonomous system. Um, the outage spread because BGP is really happy to pass bad news to everybody. Uh, reported 3.5% of global internet traffic dropped on a Sunday. The postmortem that was eventually released said that a BGP firewall rule sharing extension ultimately led to the issue. It took seven hours for company engineers to resolve as they raced to contain it because, as I said, BGP is a chatty protocol and it just kept passing all this information downstream to all of the other companies that were receiving updates from CenturyLink. Um, Steven, this is not the first time that we've seen a BGP misconfiguration cause massive internet outages. And considering that everything that we're doing now is on the cloud and we kind of need network connectivity, um, is it time for us to start looking at some different alternatives to BGP or perhaps some extensions to secure this from happening in the future? Because I don't want Netflix to go down again. Well, it seems like it happens all the time. I mean, I know that that's like, like a layman take on the thing, but... Um, you know, routing errors, um, you know, BGP errors in, in particular, um, 
you know, I definitely think that that we need to get our hands on this. Um, you know, for me, uh, from the outside, uh, I thought it was interesting when everybody started blaming Cloudflare. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> because, of course, every single time. OK, here's the thing, folks. It's not always Cloudflare's fault. Please, please listen to me. It's not their fault. <laughs> um, but yeah, we blame them all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody blames them. Anyway, um, that was kind of amusing. Uh, but um, here's who it is. You know, it's not Cloudflare. It is almost always a mid to large backbone provider with a BGP screw up. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's the the spooks and the feds and the black hats trying to like redirect traffic through North Korea or something. Um, yeah, we got to we got to get a handle on this. Tom, you're the networking nerd. How do we get the handle on this? Well, the problem is, is that a lot of the extensions that we have proposed to fix this, because we've been looking at this from a security perspective for a long time. I think you probably have mentioned um, in the past, uh, there have been incidents where Pakistan and China and a couple of other companies basically have routed the global internet through their data center for all of about 30, 45 minutes, uh, which looks like an outage because those data centers are not designed to handle that much traffic. Uh, But then people are starting to ask a whole bunch of questions. So we've been looking at it from a security perspective, um, but I will I will hop back to Hanlon's razor. Never attribute to malice that which can be um, attributed to bad configurations. Uh, so I think what we need to do is we need to have some checks and balances in the protocol. Um, BGP worked really well when there were 10,000 computers connected to the internet. We need to come up with a way to get the ease of configuration and use of BGP with some sanity checking to prevent, you know, Joe, Bob in mid-tier data center in some other part of the world from making a mistake that causes people to have to work on a Sunday. Well, you know, Tom, I know that Rich always liked to blame Oracle for everything, but clearly this is not Oracle's fault. Um, but can I just blame YAML? Um, mm-hmm. It's, God, who thought of that? Engineers. Same people that write the crappy UIs for tools that don't have labels or pictures, because you should just know that the third button from the right is save. All right. Um, last news story for this episode is actually some breaking news that was being announced today. Um, Intel's a popular uh, topic on our show, um, obviously because they're the 800-pound gorilla of the chip market. Um, maybe it's time for them to get a win back. Because because they've been taking it on the chin recently. Uh, Today, they're announcing their next generation Tiger Lake platform for thin, light laptops. Uh, Just as the Ultrabook specification from the last decade was considered to be a reaction to Apple's development of the MacBook Air, Tiger Lake looks an awful lot like they're going to try to go after the iPad Pro and the Apple Custom Silicon Market uh, recently announced at WWDC. Apple is promising best-in-class CPU and GPU performance even beating discrete GPU designs, which are you know considered to be top of the line for mobile devices. Um, there's gonna be an integrated ML engine, thanks to the new XE graphics architecture. It may be pronounced Z, I'm not sure. Um, is Tiger Lake gonna enable OEMs to create the best laptops available? Or are we looking at Intel's last gasp before Apple starts turning on the engines to make their own silicon? Well, this is a really interesting one for me. I, I'm following Intel closely again because they are the 800-pound gorilla, and you know, for all the shade that people throw at Intel, honestly, they make some decent stuff. Yeah, I just bought a Ryzen, and it's awesome. But um, the Intel 10th generation CPUs were really good too. 
Um, so this is Intel's 11th generation, uh, you know, core processor. Um, it's got some good stuff. Uh, I prefer to pronounce it as instead of XE or whatever it's, it, it is. But anyway, um, the graphics engine seems to be really, really solid. Um, like I said, it's it's competing with the with not only uh, discrete GPUs but also in the ML space. Um, you know, it's it looks really nice against you know Nvidia and AMD. Um, you know, I think Intel's got a solid product on their hands. Uh, I'm going to say this is more Ultrabook than Centrino in the range of Intel's Ultra Mobile flops. Um, you know, I think this one's going to maybe not be a flop. I think it's going to quietly power a lot of great next generation platforms. And I'm also excited about it, what it means for their future uh, desktop and, you know, uh, other CPUs as well. Uh, you know, Intel's looking at, at, at chiplets. This thing is obviously, um, you know, has two separate components on the same chip. So I think that that says something about Intel's next generation server you know, Xeon processors as well. I mean, they've literally said that at their architecture day. So I'm pretty excited about this. Um, that yeah, being I... said, <laughs> that being said, I'm sorry, Tom, uh, uh, go ahead and I'll and I'll chime in on Apple Silicon at the end. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think that that what we're looking at here is is really, you know, kind of the the Robert Frost uh, road diverged in the woods kind of thing. Apple has already taken their path. They have said that they're done with Intel. Intel needs to come back strong because if there's no market for Intel chips in that laptops that people don't want to buy, then there's no hope for that. And I know that a lot of people are starting to go out and buy these ultra massive gaming rig laptops that weigh eight pounds and take a small city to power. But a lot of folks that need laptops for business use, for simple home use, I mean, think all the way back to the net computer. All I got to do is check my email and maybe type up a document in an online system now. I don't need a whole lot of stuff to do that. I'm not going to be running crisis on this thing. Yet Intel is trying to bet big on things like machine learning. I mean, now you have a bunch of edge nodes. I'm interested to see what the response is going to be to this because there has to be a response in order to keep this from being kind of like a monopolized market. But but yeah, is this a thing where Intel's kind of betting the farm on these heavier processors versus what Apple's going to eventually end up doing? Because we know what they're going to be doing is going to be based on ARM. Uh, you know, from what they've been working on in the past. So, you know, I mean, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think that 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 this is uh, really the next um, the next step in the grand battle of x86 versus ARM. I mean, clearly um, there there are many shots fired. Um, you know, if you if you didn't see the coverage of um, the the latest ARM uh, platform announcements, you really should go back and look at that as well. Um, and if you're not clued in on Apple Silicon and what they're doing there, wow. Um, I mean, I'll just say, I so two years ago, I got the 11-inch iPad Pro and I benchmarked the thing and found that it was faster than my MacBook Pro. Um, faster in single-threaded performance, faster in multi-threaded performance. And I've got an i7 you know, MacBook Pro then. Uh, so it was a, a one-year-old MacBook Pro. So it's faster in single-threaded, fa faster in multi-threaded. It was almost as fast as the discrete graphics um, the AMD Radeon discrete graphics that came with the MacBook Pro as well. And, um, and that was the A13. Um, the A14 is um, on the horizon. Um, it's going to be, by all accounts, underpinning Apple Silicon on, you know, probably something like a MacBook Air or a MacBook. Um, certainly the iMac is going to get it soon. The MacBook Pro is going to get it soon. Um, Apple has shown that they can scale CPU cl uh, clusters. They already have a really 
fine ML engine in silicon there. They already have a really fine performing and scalable discrete GPU architecture there. Um, we are finally going to get faster mobile computers. And it's either going to come from Tiger Lake or it's going to come from Apple, or actually I suspect that it's going to come from both. Um, and of course, don't count out AMD. Um, you know, don't count out NVIDIA themselves. Um, you know, this is a race and there's nothing better than a race. Yep. Because in a race, we all win because we get to watch them try to beat each other up. Um, I think honestly, at this point, it, it's it's important to acknowledge the sage-like um, future predictions of one Angelina Acid Burn Jolie in the 1995 movie Hackers. Risk architecture is going to change everything. And I think it really has. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. That should just about do it for this Wednesday's episode of The Rundown. Remember that this is available as a podcast. You can watch us live on YouTube here every Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, just head over to Gestalt or youtube.com slash gestaltitvideo. Um, we also post the videos on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gestaltit. Uh, and we do have a podcast feed in iTunes. And uh, if you want to leave us a rating and a like over there and tell people what you like about the show, that helps everybody else find it. Um, maybe they enjoy snarky looks at the news, too. Um, we'll be back next Wednesday to talk about all the IT news of the week that has happened in the last seven days. Until then, for myself, Tom Hollingsworth, for my amazing co-host, Mr. Stephen Foskett, we are wishing everyone out there to have a very super, very sparkly day. Goodbye. <laughs>